we can all see how conflict affects energy prices. More than ever, we need to be mindful of how we use energy. By reducing your use, you can save money and lessen the impact. Here's how. Use your timer and thermostat to heat your home and hot water to the temperature you need. Use appliances efficiently and, where possible, outside the peak hours of 4 to 7 p.m. Consider walking, cycling or public transport for short journeys. Drive at lower speeds where safe to do so. Government advice and supports are available for homes and businesses to help you meet this challenge. Find out more at gov.ie forward slash reduce your use. Brought to you by the Government of Ireland. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk. I actually have no fixed abode. Um, I'm actually registered as homeless, believe it or not. But I live full-time in my vehicle, in my van. So I've converted that into a tiny home. So your van is your home? Yeah, absolutely. And it was the most practical solution. I was living in Westport. And I was paying over €1,000 a month just to rent a property. And I kind of went, well, actually, hang on. I'd rather own something. And the only thing I could afford was a very tiny home. And what's it like? living in a home on wheels oh well it's not for everybody but I absolutely find my revolving sitting room window glorious personally would you like to have a natural bricks and mortar home if you could afford it and how does it make you feel your generation are going to be worse off than your parents not better off but worse off and that wages have basically become stagnant I think it's going to be a review of how we actually participate we're not necessarily worse off than our parents. I think we have to just think of new innovative solutions. So think differently about it. Think differently uh, and ask the government to allow us to build sustainable houses that necessarily aren't the price of brick and mortar, but, you know, to go back to our indigenous ways of building with cob and thinking alternatively. I mean, the fact that the county councils make it so difficult for... Um, people to get planning for alternative buildings, tiny homes, cob houses. Maybe we need to be looking at a more sustainable way of, lo- of, of looking at our futures. According to the ESRI, stagnant wages and expensive housing are leaving young people in Ireland worse off than their parents. Would you agree with that statement? I'd fully agree with that. Yes, I do indeed. Um, I'm currently renting, but we're in the process of starting to build our own home in the next month or so it's starting. So it's been a long road trying to get planning permission and getting prices for um, the so build. So it's coming, it's happening, you're getting it's happening. a house build, actually it's happening. built. Yeah, our own home, we're building it now. We're at the ages of 38 and 39, so we're finally starting our own home. I have a little boy, he's 19 months old, so we want plenty of space for him and a big garden for him to play in and a playroom. We kind of decided that we'd save up as much as we could so we didn't have to get a huge mortgage then so that we can, I can still work part-time and be with my son then the rest of the week. Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, what happens if you don't meet the right person? And what does it mean to be single in your 40s? Well, take a listen to this. When you look back, was it a gradual process? You know, were you, were you kind of, was there an assumption underlying things up to a certain point where you thought, well, you know, I'm just not married yet? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and and it, I think that's why I wrote the book, really. I, I sort of have described myself. I, I never thought about it until I started, started doing the writing, but I realised that I've always seen myself as pre-married, um, partly because that's, you know, that's just the life that we're all sort of taught to sort of believe in as we, um, from the moment where we're, we're told fairy tales when we're kids you know we are going to find our prince or princess charming and um and that's just a big part of what what adult life is about is finding the finding a person and settling down with them and so I definitely definitely made the assumption that that was going to happen to me and it was really only as I approached 40 that I started I, I even started allowing myself to to think, well, wh- how would it be? How genuinely, how would it be if I didn't, if I didn't do this thing that everybody else does? And because you, because you realize, everybody realizes at some stage that their life is finite and you've got to really kind of consider, well, am I going to spend my whole life feeling like I'm in a sort of limbo and I'm waiting for something to happen or am I going to actually appreciate celebrate and live my life as it is instead of as it would be uh, or as it might be uh, when I when I find a partner mm. and and for, certainly from your description of it from your friends your family your niece who you seem to adore that, that it's not like you're feeling any lack of anything no and and I think again that was something I really had to consider because there's certainly um you know there's different kinds of love aren't there and mm. that you know we 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 are all becoming much better at appreciating the importance of friendship in our lives i think in a way that we we've always held up the romantic ideal of you know the couple is the ultimate kind of form of support and then the family is is the next form of support and then friendship is kind of you know the wider form of support but if you don't have either of those first two things um you actually you you look at how you feel you 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 certainly sort of interrogate how you feel about your friends and how you feel about your family you know your wider family in a different way I mean I think that we have struggled to put names and descriptions on on the emotions that we have um for people for people that aren't kind of our romantic or immediate family because Mm those feelings can be just as strong and those support networks can be just as important. And certainly for single, um, for single people. And, and for me, um, they're incredible. They can be incredibly intense, intimate, vital um, parts of my, parts of my life. Yeah. Well, I suppose one metric is, uh, do you have people in your life who, if you needed to, would help you bury a body? Yes, although uh, I think um, they're such good people and such, uh, you know, as well as such good friends, they would very much want to know why they were burying a body. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be fair. <laughs> I, I, I would have thought. <laughs> the uh, now, I mean, and, and you do write about you had no particular desire uh, to be a parent, and uh, as as we mentioned already, uh, you do have a niece. Uh, sex, Emma. Um, I'm not offering. I'm, I'm, do you miss it? Do you think about it? Is that a factor? I mean, yeah, I think that is, it is, it's one of the things you think about. It's also one of the things that you sort of stop noticing that you're missing, I think. Mm. Um, that's, that's certainly been my experience. And it will obviously, that obviously is different from individual to individual. But um, it's, I write about it in the book as something that 
you know, I will I will occasionally watch a watch something on TV, and suddenly, you know, watch watch a beautiful kind of romantic moment. The music swells, and the the couple that you've been aching to get together, they they finally have a kiss, and you know, you you, you respond to that in a physical way where you go. Oh yes, I remember. Mm. I remember that is still a part of me. That's still a part of uh, you know my human experience. Um, but I certainly don't kind of I don't notice the lack of it. Yeah, <laughs> every day. Maybe it's different for guys. Don't know. Can't uh, comment on uh, that. Uh, what she just said there probably describes uh, an awful lot of married couples. Actually, come to think <laughs> of it. What a refreshing take, journalist and author Emma John from Moncrief. On Saturday, Susan Keogh spoke to Kathleen Chadda for News Talk Breakfast. You know, I've spoken to bereaved people, you know, lots of times. And what's always really obvious and evident is that there is a huge desire when you lose somebody to talk about that person who is gone to keep their memory alive. Like everyone who's lost somebody feels that. But I can only imagine that that need or that desire is so much stronger when the loved one has been taken away through violence. And and it is. And and look, there's, there are many people out there, many families out there who, who choose not to be as public as, we'll say, I have been. And that's absolutely the right to do so. And, and that should be respected at all times. But it should be equally my right to talk about my boys and to 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 do that. I I do it for I suppose I do it for a reason. I do it to, as I say, to show the world that their beautiful faces, because that's that's all I can do now. And and I suppose some of the work that I do in in regards to, to hopefully making a change to um uh to, to the law and how victims are, are treated mm. and families of victims are treated is their is, is part of their legacy. Yeah. And we've spoken before about um, you know, you wanting to sp- to keep the boy's memory alive, but you know, you've also been determined to tell the story for another reason. And 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 I remember when you, you spoke to us here on the show months ago and you told us, you know, what you wanted to highlight was that, you know, evils exist in normal people's lives behind normal front doors and that there is a lesson in that, you know, for everyone, there is value in hearing that for people. Absolutely. And I think it's it's important. It's not just a headline. And, and that's, I suppose, what I'm trying to, to highlight. It isn't a headline. To me, if I had been reading, uh, you know, on the on the 30th of, of July 2013, the headlines, and it was referring to another family, you know, do, would it, you, you see it, you're horrified by it, and you walk, you walk, move mm. on, if you like. And and in a way, that's how things have to be. We can't absorb everything that's, you know, that's bad in this world. And we can't assume that every partner, be it father or parent, father or mother, that, that you know, that this is going to happen. But it does happen. And I suppose it's to, to you know, we, we talk an awful lot about domestic violence at the moment and particularly over the last year and a half. And, you know, things like that, that, you know, it's it's suppose it's being being aware, looking looking. I I can't say that there were any any obvious signs in my own situation. So you know, it's it's not always obvious. But it's just I suppose to be aware that mm. things ev- evil is out there. Yeah. Um. um you know, in it, the most 
There are people, um, uh, Kathleen, whose children were taken more recently who haven't yet had an opportunity to speak about their loved ones. And there are several cases um, they're subject to, you know, separate legal orders. And some parents are still restricted from speaking about their loved ones. And I know you're in contact with a lot of those people. And yeah. I'm sure the hurt and uh, the frustration and the exhaustion at this having to have this fight is something that they're really feeling right now. And it, it, I mean, that is, it, it, it's, it's an overused word in a way, but that, that has just um, re-traumatized in, in such a big way. And I, and I think that shouldn't be underestimated. It is so frustrating and so difficult um, for, for them because they, I suppose they were ready to, to, to talk. They were ready to tell their story. They were ready to show the world um, their, their child, their children. And that, it it you know okay it it's it's easy to be tried about it and say well look it'll happen because it will it will happen and you know it'll be it, I think it's back in court again early next week yeah and you know so it will happen but to be be so ready and um I suppose you do build yourself up I mean I often get um, asked why why do I why am I so public why do I talk you build yourself up. Um, and there is a huge amount of energy that goes into that. And I'm at a point in, in life where I'm I'm somewhat used to this. I've I've been doing this for a number of years. So I've got that experience, if you like, to to draw on. Um, but when you're absolutely brand new to this and and you know, you you bit you like I say, you build yourself up into such an extent and then to have that taken away literally the 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 night before the morning of when when they should have had that opportunity to to, yeah, to talk. It's and to soul destroying. I can only imagine. Um, as you say, yeah. it will happen. Um, but I I cannot I can imagine the frustration. This super brave Kathleen Charter from News Talk Breakfast with Susan Keogh. Um, more of the comments coming in, and people are generally. Uh, apprehensive I think about a lot of these things uh, this one they have a thing called orchestra in a lot of these call centre factories that monitor every aspect of the employee from listening to going to the toilet they're usually run by a team lead who is also monitored uh, though has the privilege of not having to answer customer calls uh, Steve Jobs famous quote I will always give my most important tasks to my laziest employee because they will always find the quickest way to do it uh, I work for a semi state body. Two years ago, I was told by my manager, I was just uh, a number. Get on with it. Most companies don't give a damn about their employees. End of, says Andrew in Swords. This AAI monitoring of staff could lead to multiple claims from employees of unpaid overtime and excess hours. Well, it depends on whether you get the results of the monitoring. They may not share them with you, so you can make that claim. Uh, This artificial intelligence comes down to the greed of the capitalist system. Squeeze more and more. The creative people will use their thinking to innovate ways to cheat these systems and not give ideas to those companies. That's from uh, Therese in Kildare. Uh, So, uh, Peter... Um, this is something that is exercising our listeners uh, big time. Now, maybe it's not the reality today for many of them, but you think it is inevitable that they'll try it on anyway. Well, I mean, look, I, I, I 
think there is two sides to this and uh, you know neil's right this has always happened and um my personal view is ai there's lots of positives you know uh, you know if you look in the last year there's a company called crisp which does this uh thing that when you're on a call even in a coffee shop it it takes away all extraneous noise so even though there might be a dog barking in the background it somehow can notice that and take it out so that's ai and that's working in action that's really clever for people who can't have a silent space um there's things that do really good scheduling software so literally you know a task can work out how your calendar works in seconds and it might it's a really mundane task for us to do so there's lots of things it can do that's positive it, to, to me it's not the technology here the technology can do whatever it needs to do it's going to be about what the will of the employer is going to be and if you think about this the employer doesn't hold all the cards the reality is employees can you know walk with their feet and go elsewhere if they're not happy with what they do but you'd be naive to think that an employee an employer isn't going to use something if they feel they're in a workforce where it's very much about people with high turnover and they just want to get the most out of them while they're there the last thing i'll say is for all the employees who say they work harder when they're at home they may feel this is the case, but actually it's still going to be up to the employer. And the thing about working from home is that really is only the case if you're a freelancer. If you work in an organization, you are in a collective, and there is a lot of work that happens by people being in the same office in the same room, you know, training, mentoring, and so forth. So working from home is not always going to be the employee's um, responsibility. The employer is going to make that decision in the long term. A final question for you, Peter. Um, this is from Ted in Dunleary. If your employer logs data about you, are you legally entitled to access that data? Uh, well, it's, it's a great question. And the, the, the um, answer, unfortunately, is going to be it depends, which is the answer with most of these, because the challenge with AI technology and everything that's happening at the moment, even when you look at COVID and vaccines and whether you have to go back to work if you haven't been vaccinated, the, the, what's happening is going so much quicker than the, regu- the legislation. So you have one tel- person telling you yes, one person telling you no. It will very much depend on the employment contract and many other things. And as you said yourself, Pat, often people don't even know this stuff is there so it's very hard to find out that question in the first place in case you missed it with susan cahill a look back at the week on news talk now this week documentary on news talk explored the extraordinary life of waterford rebel leader george lennon george lennon's search for meaning to come down various religious routes from the unitarians to the quakers as his son ivan told me as we chatted one afternoon over skype but it was the practice of Zen Buddhism which Lennon settled on, and he became a founding member of the Rochester Zen Centre in 1966. Unfortunately, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, I was unable to travel to Rochester to meet Ivan or to see where George practised. I caught up with Roshi Bowden Kolid, the abbot and director of the Rochester Zen Centre, who told me about the early days of the centre and discussed why George Lennon may have turned to Buddhist practices in later life. What we now call the Rochester Zen Centre uh, was one of only two Zen centers in the United States in the, in the mid-1960s. Um, it started with uh, a small group of mostly women. There was around our 20 founding members. And uh, uh, they were they in, invited uh, Philip Kaplow. Philip Kaplow had studied. He's an American who had uh, trained in Zen in Japan for uh, some 13 years. And he was coming back to the United States. They invited him to come to Rochester, and uh, he did. Then that was the birth of uh, the Rochester Zen Center. It started off uh, in a, just a house in the city here, and then 
it, it was this was during the Zen boom of the mid sixties, mid and late sixties, when uh, people were really drawn to Zen practice. So we had a lot of people flooding in, mostly young people in their twenties. Then we had to had a lot of growing pains. We moved to a much bigger facility in the city, and then uh, over the years, um, many years later, uh, we uh, built a country retreat center, but. Back then, in George Lennon's time, it was, it was quite small. In some way, people who uh, convert uh, to, to Zen or Buddhism it's because people are dissatisfied with their own religion or their lack of religion. I, I myself hadn't, hadn't, had no religious upbringing, but uh, dissatisfaction brings us to a teaching or a practice like Zen. It can be personal suffering. Um, it can be concern about the world more broadly, concern for others' welfare. But I think when, in the end, it's, it's a searching. Um, we come to Zen because it's a practice. It's not a belief system. It's a practice. It's a method of meditation. And it's a way to search the mind, to search our nature. Um, we may not even know what we're searching for when we come to Zen. But in the end, what, it, what the promise is that it's a way to come to terms with life and death, to come to terms with uh, a reality that is beyond the, the reaches of our ordinary mind. Uh, that's, that's, I think, is a very, very common thing that uh, somehow people who come to Zen uh, recognize that, that there's more to reality than they can, that we can access through our ordinary mind. And then that what, what that opens up is the possibility of, of a greater understanding of the world, of life and death and reality and, and ourself, of course. From rebel leader to peace activist, the making of George Lennon from Documentary on News Talk. And of course, you can download the full documentary on Newstalk.com. Can I ask you, Matt, to go back to the construction of a, a crossword puzzle for a moment? Where do you start? Do you, do you begin with a theme, something you want to touch on? Do you just start with a single clue and see where it takes you? What's the approach? In general, you start with a theme, and assuming it's a puzzle with a theme, and you make a bunch of themed answers, and then you try and fit them in, and you put the black squares around them, and then you try and fill the rest of the puzzle. And in my case, I've always put in too much theme material and it won't fill. So I have to take it out and try again. And it's very sort of back and forth. And then once you have the whole thing filled in, you, you write a bunch of clues that are hopefully, you know, more clever than not, but not impossibly difficult. Uh, do, do, do they ever reject it in the paper because it is too difficult? No, I have never seen that. I know that occasionally Will will tone down the clues. So the editor will change some of the clues. And if the clues are just flat out too hard, they will make them easier. There's some stuff that um, you don't put in a puzzle. So the the guy setting the puzzle, uh, you know, Will will occasionally write back and say, this puzzle includes the following stupid word. I refuse to put that in a puzzle in the New York Times. Oh, Matt, and give me an example of, of that. I'm trying, I, I knew you were going to ask, but I'm trying <laughs> to think of one. And, um, you know, so... Uh, that's all right. It's all right you know, if one doesn't spring you know, to mind. He he rejects no, certain you know, words OSO. anyway. OSO is Spanish for bear. 
and it's a stupid word <laughs> and it's been used a ton in puzzles and people put it in because they get stuck. So I'm sure that Will will, will the editor would look askance on a puzzle that had Oso, but it's not, it's not as truly terrible as some, you know, some, the Quum, CWM is a river in Poland, I think. And that's not good. <laughs> no. Nobody knows it and it's just strange and it's just there because you got stuck. So you're encouraged to remove that sort of crossword ease from puzzles. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the the Spanish for bear. There often is in the New York Times reference to wor- words in Spanish, possibly. And I guess so many people of a Latino background and people who speak Spanish in the States, not so here. So I often struggle <laughs> when there's a clue that has anything to do with the Spanish language, I have to say. I, I, <laughs> do you, because there's a, a time lag between your submission and when it appears in print, are, are you then advised to stay away from contemporary issues i mean mentioning you know maybe someone who's a candidate in a presidential election for example because that election would be you know well past its sell by date by the time it's printed you so somewhat um the biggest thing is is the puzzles are supposed to be non-controversial so um you're supposed to not not put politics in because some of the puzzle solvers will be annoyed whatever side you take I actually, um, I had a puzzle a, a little while back where the clue was famed orange troublemaker, five letters. <laughs> and <clears throat> the answer was the Muppet Ernie. <laughs> you you knew I, what you were doing there, Matt. <laughs> I did know what I was doing. And the puzzle came out and I had forgotten about it. And I started getting all this email about this clue because you just can't put politics in the times. <laughs> and, I, and I got in touch with um, the editor and I said, am I in trouble? And he, I said, first of all, did you notice? And he said, oh yeah, we noticed. And I said, am I in trouble? And he said, no, because the answer was Ernie. So you have, you know, it's all deniable. But um, roughly speaking, you are not supposed to put uh, politics in the times. And, you know, there's something called the breakfast test. Any topic that, that you wouldn't discuss with your family at breakfast on Sunday isn't supposed to be in the times. Anything that makes you feel bad isn't supposed to be in the times. So you won't, you won't see cancer, for example. And if somehow you do, it'll be clued as the astrological sign. Okay. Um, Adolf tends not to show up because nobody good is named Adolf. <laughs> uh, so you, so there's a real effort um, and he's, and Will does a great job at it. He's, he really tries to make the crossword uplifting and fun and yeah. it should be columnist, playwright and crossword setter Matt Ginsberg from the Heart Shelter with Kieran Cuddihy. And of course you can hear the full interview on Newstalk.com. On Monday, Lunchtime Live explored the complexity of coercive control. Here's broadcaster Ruth Dudsworth. What was your tipping point to get help, Ruth, or to do something about it? Um, it took confiding in someone else to mm. make me get help. Bearing in mind I'd lived like this for the best part of 18 years. When you're in that situation, I had no control over my money. I'd effectively been cut off from family and friends, isolated. I hadn't told anybody. Nobody knew. And I think for me, the decision to get help, because actually I thought staying was better for the children. Staying in the Mm. situation was actually the easier option. I didn't know how I was going to get out of it. But it took confiding in one person, just one person who said to me, Ruth, if you don't ring the police, I will. And it, that really, for me, was the turning point. His behaviour, one particular night where he drank so much, and, and, and alcohol was a 
uh, a common theme for much of our marriage on mm. his part. The children rang me when I was in work and said, Mum, he's being violent and abusive. Don't come home because he's going to kill you. Um, and I think if I had gone home that night, he would have done. Were you ever worried for the safety of your own children, Ruth? Do you know, uh, everything that Jonathan did to me over the years, at no point did he show any sign of physical abuse towards the children. So that particular night, I knew that my my mum and dad, their grandparents were just around the corner. Mm. They assured me that they were safe. Mm. Um, And so in in a sense, I had no choice but to leave them. But I had deep down, I knew he wouldn't hurt them. His anger and aggression was always directed towards me. Um, mm. And, and it, it, you could argue whether I did the right thing by leaving them. But at that, that particular night, I knew they were okay. And I knew um, they, were, they were in constant contact with me. I think, in a sense, I had no choice. Uh, I, I couldn't have gone home. Um, and my children are slightly older. They, they, at the time, they were 15, 16. Mm. So they were able, in a sense, to, to make a decision. And the decision they made was to tell me not to come home. They sound like brave, brave kids. And, and yeah. that must have been a very yeah. damaging thing for them. I mean, you say they weren't in any physical danger, but their mental yeah. health must, be, must have been affected by that whole thing. As, when they, they, I mean, as I've said to you, Sinead, that really the, the, the physical mental abuse in my marriage started from day one. And so for, as, as children, you know, you want to protect them. You hope that they don't see things. You hope they don't hear things. But obviously mm. they do. When they were younger, it was easier to hide it or sure. you know, make excuses for daddy shouting. But actually, the older they got, they saw and heard everything and, and saw and heard things no children should ever have to see. And mm. at the moment, they're fine. And, you know, mentally, they're fine. They, we, they're talking. They're physically strong. My worry, I suppose, is, as, as any parent is, that, you know, what happens in, in the future and whether this is something, the repercussions further down the line. Yeah. Um, you know, it might, it might have affected them in ways that I just don't know. But I'm their mum and I'll do my utmost to protect of them course, and make sure that, you know, that they're safe. Now, a common refrain that we do hear, unfortunately, with victims of domestic abuse, coercive control uh, and, and women who are in this position, is maybe from people who, who don't fully understand it, you know, they might say, well, why didn't you just leave? There are refuges, there yeah. are places of yeah. safety that you can go. Uh, it has always been a crime, physical abuse. Um, so what stopped you doing that? It, it, it's, this is such a tough question to answer. Even now, I struggle with the whole phrase domestic abuse. I don't know. I think I'm only now coming to terms that my situation, the way I was living, even though I knew it wasn't right, was was classed as domestic abuse. Mm. And as I said, in a, in, a, in a strange way, when you've got no financial backing, no money, no, even though I've got a loving family, I hadn't told any of my family or my friends what was going on. And I had been isolated over the years and become increasingly dependent on Jonathan. He made you know, himself the focus of my world. And it's so difficult to, to, to pack a bag. Where do you go? I mean, I know there are shelters and there are refuges, but actually to ask someone for help mm. is possibly one of the hardest things. And as I said, at the end of the day, it was easier to stay. It was such a hard decision to move. Yes. And it took someone else to make that, to effectively take that decision out of my hands and make that for me. Broadcaster Ruth Dudsworth from Lunchtime Live. So ends another meeting.
time it takes to leave Suspended in the awkward I die a little bit I wasn't really listening Prefer your place to mine I'm lacking all those house plans But what's with all the pine? with all the pine What's with all the pine And those color-colored spines What's with all the pine Flapping So tired Can someone crack a window Get my head out of this place I'm turning off my camera But please don't do likewise I really like your serious face But what's with all the The houseplants, as heard on the Tom Dunn Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk. Sonia moved to Ireland in 2008. She says there have been many times while living here she has not sought medical advice due to her visa status. I have a PPS number, but I don't have my working visa. Because you've been here over 10 years, have there been times where you've wanted to get medical help or supports? Being undocumented, you would still be afraid, like, if they will ask you your name, and then you might be thinking, what if they will ask me with my status here? Would they report me straight away to the immigration or something like that? And then when it comes to COVID-19, do you want to get the vaccine? Of course, of course. And will you be afraid now to inquire about it? The thing is, I wanted to have the vaccine because with with my job, my, my lady is fully vaccinated. I don't want to spread it. I don't want to, sh- to give it to my, to my lady because I feel very accountable for the life that is entrusted in our hands. So that's the burden we have if we won't get an access to the vaccine. Sonia has lived in Ireland for almost 13 years and even though she has a PPS number, she is still undocumented. This has led to her having concerns about registering for a COVID-19 vaccine. Another undocumented woman who looks after an older person is Cello. She has lived here since 2015 and says life can be draining, having to be constantly living under the radar. Because I'm undocumented, when it comes to work, when it comes to looking for work, it's limited. Like sometimes we end, I ended up like I have no choice at all but to accept this. I don't have any demands. And there have been times where you've wanted to go to a GP? Yes, but because of the fear... I chose not to. You know, the carers who come every day to help me, they're all vaccinated. But how about me? I don't have any shield. 
from the virus. So I'm kind of worried about myself. I'm afraid to inquire about it because they will ask, where's your PPS or whatever, and what will I, what will I show them? Nothing. Cello has family back in the Philippines and sends the money she makes working here in Ireland back home. Minister Helen McEntee has reassured those who are undocumented that they have nothing to fear about getting the vaccine. But as Mairead McDevitt from the Migrants' Rights Centre Ireland explains to me, that even though people are assured their information will not be shared, many still don't want to risk it. We would estimate there's between 15 and 20,000 undocumented people living in Ireland, including up to uh, 3,000 children and young people. They work across a broad and diverse labour market, but would usually be in kind of like low-paid working conditions. And just from the people you speak to, are there concerns that some of them might go unvaccinated now because they're afraid to seek support? Yeah, definitely. As the two women here have highlighted, it, it's there's still that fear is always there in the back of their minds that like if they make that call that they'll somehow be found out. Even though we do have this this temporary firewall during COVID. There's no guarantee this firewall is going to be, be in place after COVID. So we're really encouraging the authorities to keep this firewall in place, you know, because access to healthcare is a basic human right that everyone should have. So with Sonia and Cello among thousands of those living and working across a range of sectors, will this community go unvaccinated during the pandemic and in the long term, unheard? Even though we're undocumented, we're also essential to the community. I hope they will recognise us. And we're really grateful to the Minister of Justice, Helen McEntee, for prioritizing the undocumented. That maybe through that regularization, we will be able to achieve what we are looking forward to. Six years not being able to see my children, that's really hard. Josh Crosby reporting for News Talk Breakfast. On Saturday, snooker ace Sean Murphy joined Shane Hannan on Off the Ball. Can I just ask you, yeah. Sean, I know you've spoken to David Kelly and the Irish Independent about this and there was an extraordinary interview you did a couple of years ago. It might have been at the Crucible after a match about, about the bullying you, you were subjected to when you were younger. I think you were 13. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, yeah. You're nine. And there was one, one quote that really, really stood out to me. And you, you had said, I'd love, this was two years ago now, mind. I'd love to say at 36, I have forgotten, but I haven't. And I never will. Mm. Uh, this, this clearly and understandably was as an experience that, that left its mark on you. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, without question. And you know, now as a father of two young children, I'm very, very mindful um, of what you say to children. You know, of, of, I'm, I'm mindful with my son who's, who's coming up to be five. You know, he's now at the age where he'll, he'll start remembering things that I say to him now. You know, up until now, you've probably had a bit of a free go at it. But... He's now at the age where if I use the wrong tone or the wrong word or I'm a little bit short with him, that's going to land on him and he's going to, re- he's going to remember that, um, as I did as a child. And um, I think it's important that, you, you know, these things, they last. These memories don't go away. And, and I, you know, yeah, I wish I could, um, you know, forget some of the horrific things I went through as a kid, you know, at the hands of bullies at school, uh, inside and outside of school. Um, and you know, a lot. Of course, a lot of people today they use the throwaway comment and they say, "Ah, sure," but you know, it, it worked, didn't it? You know, it helped you get where you are, and it made you a tougher person, and it, this, that, and the other. Like, I'm not sure people who say that have ever actually been through it, you know, because it, it wasn't very pleasant. I can assure you. Um, but yeah, no, I, I had some horrific experiences at school. You know, I quite enjoyed school, 
but I didn't enjoy being at school with everyone else. I, if I could have gone to school on my own, <laughs> I would have loved that. Um, but but um, no, the, certainly the place where I grew up in the Midlands in England was, you know, quite a rural place. Nothing ever happened there. Um, you know, Earthlingborough was quite a small, sleepy little town. And um, from being 10 years of age, you know, I was big news in the town, you know, in a very small place. I became quite big news at such a young age and got sponsored by the local millionaire owner of Doc Martin's Shoes. He lived locally. He sponsored me. And that, that, that sort of drew more of the spotlight, which I didn't really want. You know, I was very thankful for the sponsorship, of course. Uh, and that meant that I could do things, get a snooker table of my own and stuff like that. Um, but it brought with it some negatives, you know, and it brought with it some some people. I think I think the kids I went to, they thought they thought that I thought that I was better than them, you know, which I didn't. I was just trying to do my thing and try and chase my dream. But it, it led to some quite horrific, you know, violent scenes at school. And, you know, there was one day, I think it was the penultimate day of, my last year at school when I was 13, you know, I was badly, badly assaulted by a team of lads, um, you know, who were a lot older than me. I think they were the elder brothers of some kids in my year. Um, and they would have been in there last year at school and they really gave me a good hiding, you know, in the toilets. And they left me, they left me like, <laughs> left me for dead is probably a bit extreme, but they, they gave me a good kick in, you know, and I wasn't getting out there on my own. And it, but for but for the teacher who found me and took me home, you know, who knows how that day might have ended? Who knows where that might have gone? And that's something I'll never ever forget. The straight talking Sean Murphy from off the ball on Sunday. Claire McKenna call up with psychotherapist Coleman Nocter for alive and kicking. You're right, though. It is a real socio-cultural message that is ingrained in us to always seek for more and be moving on to, to the next thing and to feel like there's something missing that will get better when you attain something else. It's, it's quite hard to get your head around just being content with right now. But I, I think as well, Claire, that the issue is that we've lost a concept of enough. You know, there is no enough. And if there's no enough, then there's no point at which you're content because you always want more. And I, and I think from the point of view of, you know, you might sit down and, you know, everything's fine and you're looking at your, your life and saying, this is grand. It's Friday night. I'm sitting here. All the kids are in bed. Nobody needed Calpol. It's all great. And then you look on your phone and three of your friends are on a golfing holiday in Marbella. And all of a sudden, your enough is no longer enough, you know, and you kind of feel disenfranchised by it. And I think from the point of view of, there's something about our concept of enough or our level of contentment that actually doesn't exist. We don't have, like if I was to say to you, what's enough for you? You wouldn't be able to maybe state that because as soon as you get there, you'd want more. And I think sometimes our culture drives our expectations and it's, our happiness is very simple. It's this formula, expectation minus reality equals happiness. So maybe it's not about changing reality, but maybe about adjusting our expectations. And if there's anything to come out of the last year, maybe it has adjusted our expectations a little bit. Maybe we are seeing more value in relationships and less in things. And, you know, because we haven't been able to do stuff, maybe it has realigned our value system for the good. Um, and I hope when we reboard, we'll be able to hold on to some of the learnings from that. Me too. So how do we practically bring this into every day? Do you start in the morning going, where am I today? Am I four to seven or, you know, and, and kind of look through various areas of your life, like you said, food, exercise, alcohol intake, workload, parenting. Are you in some way 
grading as you're going along and checking in with yourself? Sometimes, yeah. I, I mean, I think, like, say, for example, this morning, like, this is maybe the fourth Zoom call I've been on. I haven't been outside. I haven't gone for a walk. My smartwatch has just told me beforehand, you know, you need to stand up. Uh, and so from the point of view, that's telling me, you know, my exercise levels are, are one, two, three, and maybe my work level this morning is eight, nine, ten. So, you know, maybe after this, I take 10 minutes to have a walk, go outside, fresh air and, and try and bring it down a bit, uh, bring the exercise level up and bring the busyness down and then go again. And, you know, because if I keep doing this till five o'clock and I still haven't moved at that point, I'm going to feel a lot more compromised by it so it is about the checking in and I, I genuinely say this you know this has really helped me over the last year to kind of identify when I'm in the eight nine ten and four and one two three and try and find my way back to the four to seven and I it sounds so simple but it genuinely does work it's just you know we're, we've been taking temperatures you know for the last 12 months by sticking things in our ears and seeing where our temperature's at see where your mental health is at do it a, a one to ten check and try and keep that four to seven going as much as you can and just remember that the middle is the safest. It's a really good analogy because working as a psychotherapist, the people that you see who are in the, the, the one and three, that brings its own challenges, as do the, does the eight to ten, because when you're at a certain standard, there's a pressure to keep getting to it. So you're right. We need to, to celebrate that four to seven safe middle a little bit more. Yeah, I don't see many of my clients coming to me who are four to seven. If any, you know, um, if it's leaving cert and I'm afraid to go to the toilet in case I lose three minutes of biology studying or if it's the third of June and I'm going, you know, English paper one tomorrow, I better look at this book. You know, they're the, the two extremes of, of preparation. Um, those four to seven kids tend to do OK. And I think as parents, we need to remind ourselves that actually the middle is safe and it's fine. And let's not all try and drive for the top because, you know, sometimes that might be what ca- causes the wheels to come off. Some terrific advice there from psychotherapist Dr. Kilman Nocter from Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. And of course, you can tune in to Claire every Sunday morning from 9 till 10. OK, I'm going to leave you with now Stephanie Roan and some eager penny shoppers from earlier in the week. Have a great weekend. I actually don't know. I picked up everything. <laughs> Just the bits, is it? Yeah, socks and the knickers and that. What everyone's in for. So all our bits. I should have came with a list though, that's the only thing. What did you get? Um, the usual underwear, pyjamas, a few dresses if we ever get summer and just all unnecessary things I didn't need, but sure luck. You know what, um, I was then putting in my pin code and to be honest with you, I was like, I had to think about my pin code because I'm not used to using it now because normally it's in your fast card or your, it's in online and you just go in and pay and um, no normality is good for our heads. Yeah, no so, sleep was slept last yeah. night. I woke up at five just to be ready for seven, just to be able to come in. And more importantly, what did you get? Um, loads of stuff. They have really nice bike shorts and little mini tops yeah, and they blankets. Yeah, nice like two pieces. They're like real summery pastel yeah. colours. Absolutely fantastic and hats off to everyone involved. It was so well organised and it was really, really comfortable to get around the store. It was virtually empty so it was great and how does it feel to be back out and about wonderful the security guard actually laughed at me i said oh my god i'm home <laughs> really enjoyed to get back in and so well they always were so helpful and so nice really kind and um, plus the fact i'm going to punch town to get my injection so brilliant your vaccine yeah, yeah vaccine yeah so i'm delighted because i mean it was a long hard year for everyone but to be able to come in here, get you a few bits, go and get you an injection. 
such trail lines to go because I mean it's fair crazy. It's like you wonder lot. Now, no, you're having a good day. No joke inside. It's like you wonder lot. So we're going up to get McDonald's now. So thank God for everything. <laughs> In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. We may never work in the same way again. So reimagine the office with scalable workspaces that flex to your needs. Design-led interiors and world-class IT. Iconic offices have reinvented the future of working, so you don't have to. Hybrid offices, co-working, or custom floors for a global HQ. 16 prime Dublin locations, infinite possibilities. Experience it for yourself. Visit iconicoffices.ie to reimagine how working can work for your business.